Listeners, I'm afraid I must inform you of an extremely unfortunate event. Several of them, in fact. So many that we've decided to create a podcast to chronicle them all. But if you're interested in well-produced podcasts with celebrity guests, you would be better off listening to something else. There will be no famous people on this show, and only the cheapest editing software will be used. There won't even be a Squarespace ad. For those of you brave enough to stay, welcome to our perilous podcast discussing a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. Welcome to Not So Young Adults, where two former teens try to recapture the glory days of their youth by discussing their favorite YA books to figure out what makes them so dang good. As always, my name is Spencer, and I am joined by my lovely co-host and resident librarian in training, Jess. Hello, everybody. I'm back. It's been so long. I feel like it has been so long. It's been a dark, dark time without you. Yeah. Everyone's really mad that you're gone. Once again, Spencer got me sick. And mm-hmm. it just it did a real number on my vocal cords. Got you lovesick. Um, yeah. And so, but I'm glad to be back. I feel much better. I feel like I sound better. So I'm ready to party. No, it's great. It's great. We're great to have you back. You're looking great. Thank you. Looking sweaty. Yeah. We just ran. Yeah. For those of y'all who might not be in the know, Spencer and I are, are training. We're athletes now. So yeah. sorry, nerds. We're got- talking about push-ups this week. Yeah. I got a 5K in March. Mm-hmm. That stands for kicking your butt, nerd. <laughs> five times. No, it's five kilometers. Let's change to the metric system, people. It's overdue. It is, Does, truly. Do you, any of you, I was going to say, do any of you care about yards? But I actually do because I'm a football fan. Yeah. So maybe, you know what? Imperial it is. <laughs> well, this week we're coming back at you with episode or with book eight, mm-hmm. The Hostile Hospital. Hostile Hospital. What does my manager work there? <laughs> Uh, that is, is, I just want to say that is a work of satire. I'm not actively right. targeting it's, any it's of my like managers. It's like when you joke about hating your wife. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then you find out I'm actually married. <laughs> you get real mad. Um, okay, but like off the top of the dome, mm. like just general thoughts about this book. Mm-hmm. I, for some reason, I thought this, this entire series was just going from one bad adult like parent to another to another and i was like how are they gonna make this last 13 books nope they only made it last seven yeah and and i will say it might have been a little too long like i feel like it could have happened a little bit sooner but i do like the direction it's going no same especially going back to the squalors after the lumber mill and the prep school it was weird going back to another adult and then basically another adult in the vile village yeah with Hector. So yeah, it's a little weird. But I, I think this is when the series really starts getting interested. And I don't know, this one isn't my favorite. I'm gonna be honest. I'm not loving the hostile hospital. Maybe it's because I spend all day at the hospital. And I want to think about it. But uh, <laughs> it's mostly about a certain part of this hospital we'll get to that infuriates me and I'm sure you to no end. So let's just let's without further ado, let's get into it. Yeah. And start our recap of what happened 
in this week's book, A Series of Unfortunate Events, Book 8, The Hostile Hospital. And Jess, will you start us off by reading the book's dedication? I'm going to take a wild guess. This time he changed it up. It's not going to be addressed to Beatrice. You're wrong. Ah! (laughs) For Beatrice, summer without you is as cold as winter. Winter without you is even colder. Damn, that's a... Are we counting damn as a curse I I don't count. Okay. It. If it's in the Bible, it's okay. Right. I would say damn and crap. Okay. All right, just for the parents out there, damn and crap are on the table. Yeah, yeah. Literally, we have a table here, and our, our cat uses this room as a litter box, so... <laughs> uh, a little scatological humor. But anyways, that one's subtle. It, that it was, kinda, it, it's a little simple, but it's... It hits it's, me. Oof. It reminds me a little bit of Robert Frost. Because cold frost. Right, right. I think it's more of like nature kind of vibes. Mm, that too. Mm-hmm. That too. That's mm-hmm. a good point. Mm-hmm. A path in in woods went. Diverging. To, and... to, that, that was divergent. <laughs> and one book was good. And the other was <laughs> not good. And I took the one that was good. And it turned out to actually not be good either. At the end, it got bad. At the Well, yeah. And by the end, it didn't matter which road I took. I was <laughs> to, I was upset by what I, my purchase at Barnes & Noble. <laughs> Take that, Veronica take, Roth. Take that, Veronica Roth. Is that who writes it? I don't know. <laughs> Fact check us, guys. I can't believe we're doing diversion after this series. <laughs> so we begin with the Baudelaire's in somehow their most precarious situation yet, which is quite the statement to make, but mm-hmm. I think it's true. No parents, which actually maybe that is actually a bonus. I don't know if that's worse or better for them, but they are still stuck in in the middle of nowhere, after fleeing the village of foul devotees with no food or water after walking for miles. Yeah, and they're wanted criminals. And, yes, so they are now framed for the murder of Count Olaf, who is not actually dead, but everyone in the world thinks that these three innocent orphans are brutal killers. Of Actually, Count Omar. Sorry, yes. Yeah, so to, <laughs> to, to muddy the waters a bit more, Count Omar has been killed by, like, Tim, Sue, and... Venice, (laughs) Baudilar. So just as they are on the verge of collapse, they come across a small wooden building with a sign reading, Last Chance General Store. They were afraid to go in in case they would be recognized from their photos in the newspaper, but the store's name and the vast empty plains surrounding them implied that this may be the last chance they had to contact other humans. Yeah, hammer on the nail there. Really is. The children then notice a sign in the shop's window advertising a telegraph inside. So the children decide to use it to contact Mr. Povid, who unfortunately was the only person who could actually help them, which is not where you want to be in life. Right. No, it certainly isn't. And I, I do I do want to say I like the stop motif that occurs throughout this book. Yeah. So Snicket opens up with using stop at the end of every sentence like a telegraph, Mm -hmm. which is fun. Yeah, no, it's fun. And then I think he uses it periodically throughout the the story as well. Yeah. Well, and at the the editor's note at the end of the last book was using that same format. Exactly. Isn't it weird how much we learned about telegraphs as kids? (laughs) Yeah. Being as they were long obsolete. Yeah. Like, I didn't didn't learn about typewriters at all. It's so strange. It's weird. I think... Like we learned about Morse code. Like we like did like little bits of like learning Morse code in did school. You? Yeah. I did you? I didn't do it that. It wasn't like rigorous. They weren't like they weren't really making us learn Morse code. I remember like having the alphabet of Morse code and I was like, why are we doing this? We barely have computers. Yeah, but now you can solve mysteries. Whoa. 
Inside, they meet the shop's friendly owner, Milt, who luckily hasn't read the latest edition of the paper. Milt kindly lets the Baudelaire's use the telegraph and even feeds them breakfast. Oh. I know. The children type out a message to Mr. Poe, Vid, because, of course, Klaus knows Morse code. Nerd. <laughs> as, the children, as the children wait for a response, a delivery man arrives and tells Milt about the Baudelaire murderers, and the children are forced to flee the store. As the children wait for a response, a delivery man arrives and tells Milt about the Baudelaire murderers, and the children are forced to flee the store. Outside, the children spot a van with VFD painted on the side. <gasps> and immediately I thought, that's not the right one. It's not the right one. No, VFD. this is the last book. This it, is it. <laughs> a bearded man welcomes them on board, and they all take off. And let this be a lesson to you kids. A bearded man inviting you into his van is not always a bad idea. Sometimes it can work out for you. <laughs> Especially if he has a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, if he has a guitar, definitely run, <laughs> as we will see. Yeah. So the children learn that they have been picked up by the vault. <clears throat> Maybe doing this after a run in the cold <laughs> was not, not the, the best smartest. idea. <laughs> like doing no warm up. <clears throat> All my theater training is I've, I've wasted it. <laughs> the children learn that they have been picked up by the picked up by the Volunteers Fighting Disease, a group that travels to hospitals, quote unquote, helping sick people using songs and balloons instead of you know medicine. <laughs> Boy, did this get more relevant than when it was released. <laughs> I think they use uh, what was the what was the horse Imagine, laxative? Uh, oh no, oh. I was thinking of oh, all, the, think all like... the famous people did that during COVID. Oh, it was like oh thank you that helped. <laughs> oh wow, that's really cool of you who are like in the best situation to handle this. Yeah. Oh my god, thanks. So tone. Of course, they pick the like douchiest song. John Lennon, the wife beater. Dick, I mean, it's so hard to, to <laughs> insult a man without cursing. The wife, I just wife Peter's enough. Actually, I don't need to call him anything. Yeah. He was a he was a real jerk. Yeah, he that was. John Lennon shouldn't have been killed. Just gonna say that. Yeah, but he was a real jerk. And then to pick his like high school ode to atheism. Right. Yeah. Anyways, just read from from Ayn Rand. <laughs> what are we talking Where, about? What? Uh, so they, so fortunately, the group VFD lives by the motto, no news is good news. Which is actually our motto when it comes to, like, the environmental disaster. This, we today. were talking about this the other day. It's like, we can't watch, like, anything to do with the environment because we already, we know. It's, yeah, we know it's bad. It's just anxiety inducing. Yeah, like, I don't need to see another starving polar bear. Like, it's not helping me. I'm not helping it. I, I can't do it anymore. I can't watch more. I'm already sold. Exactly. I'll do whatever it yeah. is. Yeah, but... like I already donate to Greenpeace. Get out. <laughs> oh my God. I'm just going <laughs> to. Thank you. Thank Just you. donates to Greenpeace. I won't tell you who I donate to, <laughs> but his name rhymes with Ronald Rump. <laughs> Ew, Ted Cruz texted me the other day. Uh, he's always. It might not have been him. He's always in my DMs. And he got me. He freaking got me because he was like, take the survey. I was like, you know what? Bet Ted Cruz. I'll take your freaking survey. And I filled it all out with the answers they didn't want. And then you could only submit the survey if you donated to the campaign. Ew. Ew. Uh, that's slimy. I need a shower. Yeah. Roast Ted Cruz. <laughs> Where were we again? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to me in the future having to edit this out. Fortune. <laughs> okay. So I'm just going to read that again. Yeah. So fortunately, the group lives by the no by the motto, no news is good news, and have therefore never read the paper. Unfortunately, the group is unrelentingly upbeat and loves to sing so much that they don't even mind singing the same song over and over and over again. Hey, practice makes perfect. Am I right? Well, 
you got to practice well. <laughs> but anyways, that's not important. What is important is mm-hmm. I have an exciting announcement for you guys. Honestly, you should be excited. I got an exclusive, y'all. We actually managed to get a hold of a recording, an original recording from the bearded man himself of this song. And this was no easy feat, I'm telling you. In order to even get in contact with the singer, I had to infiltrate an ocean-themed amusement park by pretending to be a drummer and gave me a job and I, I worked there for five years. And then to get the singer to trust me, I had to keep up the ruse for several years and I was just had to constantly feed him with terrible, the worst music I could find just so he never learned with like proper drumming sounded like <laughs> and I could get in his good graces enough that he would let me record and play in this song. So we're going to go ahead and play that original recording for you right now. We are volunteers fighting disease And when Chip rode along, if someone said that we were sad, that person would be wrong We visit people who are sick and try to make them smile Even if their nose bleed or if they cough up bile Tra-la-la, fiddle-dee-dee, hope you get well soon Ho-ho-ho, hee-hee-hee, have a heart-shaped balloon We visit people who are real and try to make them laugh Even when the doctor says he must cut them in And then we sing some more We sing for boys with broken bones And girls whose throats are sore Ha ha ha, fiddle-dee-dee, hope you get well soon Ho ho ho, hee-hee-hee, have a heart-shaped balloon Sing for men with measles and to women with the flu. And if you breathe in deadly germs, well. We'll probably be singing to you. Tra la la, hope you get well soon. Ho ho ho, hee hee have a heart shaped balloon. That is amazing. Isn't that good? I'm so happy that we have this. It was worth <laughs> all those years working at an amusement park. <laughs> pretending that I could play the drums. Uh, yeah, no, I would say it is worth it. So the children in VFD arrive at Heimlich Hospital, which I feel like I should say Heimlich Hospital. Heimlich. Heimlich Only Hospital. Only I can. 
<laughs> you might have to say with all the phlegm you got. There. I know, yeah. Um, due to the lack of funding, it remains only half completed. And it's literally half completed. The building is split down the middle <laughs> with one side a full functioning hospital and the other just scaffolding. It reminds me of that meme with the horse that's like really artistically detailed drawn and then it's like a stick figure in the second half. <laughs> yeah. The children managed to get jobs in the Library of Records, which perked my ears up whenever... I bet it did. I, I was like, hello. And then your ears uh, quickly folded down and <laughs> pressed into your skulls are they good. Yeah, no, it was, it's, it's a terrible... The, the setup is terrible. In part. So they managed to get these jobs in part due to Sunny's robust resume. Remember, this is her third job. Yeah, office job. Third office job. <laughs> Where they meet their new boss, Hal. Upon meeting them, Hal recalls seeing them before in a folder labeled The Snicket Files. I bet there's nothing interesting in that. (sighs) I love conspiracy. I'm so excited. (laughs) The children wanted to know more, but reading any of the files is strictly forbidden. Which is good. I mean, you know, we patients' rights and stuff. Well, if it had anything about the patients. We're going to have a whole discussion. (laughs) We're going to have to keep ourselves from making this all about this library records (laughs) because, oh my gosh, this thing is maddening to people like you and I. <laughs> this is spe- I feel like this no we get I have a whole thing planned. Yeah, we'll, we'll get, get into, into it. it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no it's so bad. It's the literally the how is the cow should be tried for genocide or war crimes. <laughs> war crimes. But anyways. <laughs> At night the children sleep in the unfinished half of the hospital where they review what's left of the Quagmire's journals and come up with a plan to get a hold of the Snicket files. Taking advantage of Hal's poor eyesight, the children get a hold of the library keys. That was the worst burp I've ever heard. It really was. They get a hold of the library keys by swapping them with a set made out of paper clips. Mm-hmm. Appar- apparently his uh, sense of weight was also poor. Right. I do I do love the visual that the illustrator The illustration of the made. keys bent or the paper clips bent into keys is really cute. It's good. Uh, that night, they sneak back in and search for the file, which is surprisingly difficult to find because of the file system. We'll get into it. We'll get <laughs> we, we'll get there. <laughs> they finally find the file under B for Baudelaire, whatever. But only the but only the last of thirteen pages remains. Mm-hmm. Attached to the page is a picture of four people standing outside of six six. Oops, <laughs> Freudian slip. Four people standing outside of 667 Dark Avenue, where the children lived with Esme and Jerome Squalor in Book 6. The children recognize the first person as Jacques Snicket, and sitting next to him is a man whose face was obscured by a notebook and pen that he was holding. Headcanon, that's Lemony Snicket. I think it's pretty clear that that's supposed to be Lemony Snicket. Yeah. But it was the final two people that the children were truly transfixed by. Two people that the Baudelaire's thought they would never see again their parents which actually when i read that it made me realize they probably didn't have pictures of their parents they had no, no like literally burnt down everything so they literally never thought they would see their parents again like that at in any capacity like I, i'm kind of tearing up right i realized now. that today as i was going over the script i was like that really is devastated yeah but there's more <sighs> under the photo was a single line of text which read Because of the evidence discussed on page 9, experts now suspect that there may in fact be one survivor of the fire, but the survivor's whereabouts are unknown. All right, we're going to get a pause here to go, what? Yeah, which... Someone's alive from the fire. Like, I, what I hope 
obviously is that one of the parents are alive. Right. But what There's I There's zero fear, chance that's happening. Yeah. What I fear is that the parents were maybe meeting with someone. Maybe it was yeah. like Count Olaf or some of his nefarious crew. Mm-hmm. And it was documented that they were present for like whatever meeting or outing right. and that they'd gotten away. And I've, that's why they want to burn down those papers. I, I have a theory similar to yours, but I'm gonna save it for later. Okay. I have a little spot for it, but I and I don't know I don't I truly don't remember because I remember I read this as a kid, but I truly don't remember. I was surprised when I read this. I had no memory of this. Oh good, good. Glad um, to hear. <laughs> but I, I think it's pretty safe to say that there's no way one of the parents is alive. No, they're Just not because, lucky enough. That's not for the that. story. It's that is not, not the story. <laughs> as much <laughs> as fact, I want it to be. In fact if you think it is you should put this book down right now. <laughs> But just keep playing the pod on, in the background so we get the views. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Um, so the children were so captivated by the page that they don't notice that they aren't alone inside the library anymore. Just like the children, Esme Squalor had also broken into the library in search of the Snicket file. She chases after them, but is significantly hampered by her stiletto shoes, which have tiny knives for heels and keep getting stuck in the floor. One. I love that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Two, this is when I learned that stiletto is a type of knife and the I heels are named after either. the knife. Yeah. I was also shocked, but I thought that's funny. That's that really he makes clever. it a literal stiletto heel. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Claps for uh, Mr. Snicket. That's a good joke. Cheers to you. Esme knocks over filing cabinets, causing them to knock over even more cabinets like Domino's. With the toppled cabinets blocking the exit, the Baudelaires are forced to escape through an air duct. However, Violet is too big to fit, and her siblings have no choice but to leave without her. Which is a little weird, because I don't think Violet's, like, wider than the other kids. No, it's kind of, but also, like, Uh, Sunny has sharp teeth, and that's not realistic. (laughs) Things gotta happen. Yeah. Back at the unfinished half of the hospital, Klaus and Sonny listen with dread as the intercom announces that the hospital's head of HR has been replaced by a man named Matthias. Who... Oh, I thought it was Matthias. <laughs> I'm going Matthias because I don't want to say Matthias, but you okay. may be right, but I'm okay. calling him Matthias. Okay. A man named Matthias, who the children knew was actually Count Olaf. Mm. Matthias warned the hospital to be on the lookout for the murderers, Klaus and Sonny. In the morning, the two orphans sneak back into the hospital by pretending to be with the VFT group. And they are learned that Violet is being scheduled to undergo the world's first craniectomy, the procedure to surgically remove her head. Wild. Klaus and Sonny determine that Olaf is hiding Violet under an anagram of her name, because as we know, Olaf has like three ideas that Mm -hmm. he keeps recycling. Mm -hmm. So the two hide in a supply closet and use alphabet soup to figure out that Violet is being hidden under the name Laura V. Bleoti. Whoa. Bleedioti. Laura... Like bleeding out. Bleedioti. Oh, that's funny. Violet is being hidden under the name Laura V. Bleedioti. Kind of like Don Quixote, but ah. mostly different. Yeah. <laughs> this actually inspired me. I really want to make alphabet soup. I was like, can I get alphabet shaped pasta and just like put that in a soup? Can you have a full alphabet day of meals? Because you can get the cereal. Yeah. What was? What is your lunch going to be? Because you got your dinner of the soup. Is there right, another alphabet product? You can make product? like a pasta salad with the alphabet pasta. That's true, but you need but you need a separate, you need three meals. What's the third? Is there a third alphabet based food product out there? Yeah, if you guys can figure. If you guys that know out, one of those, yeah, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter. Yeah. 
or our OnlyFans page. Right? <laughs> we should, you know what? Idea. I should do an OnlyFans where I just read. <laughs> Sonny and Klaus disguise themselves as doctors using surgical masks and lab coats and go find their sister. Which is accurate because my hospital also keeps lab coats for children around just for fun. <laughs> <laughs> Along the way, they run into Esme, who somehow mistakes them for Olaf's associate. Huge L for Esme. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Like they look like the white faced women. Yeah. Uh, you can't. They're literally like the. Famously pale and identical. That whole part where they're they're getting away with that is like it gave me so much anxiety because I'm like, when are they gonna find out? I just talk about falling upward. Yeah, it's just like well, how is this working? So she sends them along with the hook-handed man and the bald man with the big nose to the surgical theater to perform Violet's craniectomy. There, they find that Violet has been put asleep with anesthesia. So, Klaus and Sonny try to stall until she wakes up. Klaus distracts the audience by telling them the history of the rusty knife he's using for the surgery. Esme then enters with the real white-faced women and reveals to the audience <laughs> and reveals to the audience that the two surgeons are actually the famous murderers, Klaus and Sonny. You mean that obviously toddler size <laughs> that obvious toddler is not a doctor? <laughs> I gotta say, Sonny actually is now my favorite of the three of them. Oh, I think me too. Yeah. I think me too. Klaus has made too many minor errors from yeah, the perspective I agree. anymore. I agree. Uh, and then um, Violet's just too old and reasonable. Well, she's she's asleep at the wheel. Like, what is she? She's not helping him. Yeah. Although, shout out to Anesthesia for paying for my college. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ted. <laughs> and Donna. Uh, Hal arrives soon after and accuses the Baudelaire's of setting fire to the Library of Records. Any other Library of Records. I would be so upset about it being set on fire. Not this one. This though. one needed to be purged from the earth. Absolutely. But we'll get into it. <laughs> he says, having gone into it like three times. <laughs> so as Olaf's henchmen close in on the children, Klaus tosses the rusty knife at their feet, which for some reason startles all of them for mm. long to just match them going, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these are all people just attacking children right. for a living, so I, I imagine they're not the bravest. Yeah, I wouldn't expect much of them. But it gives Klaus and Sonny just enough time to jump on Violet's gurney and escape out the room. So fun. Just a dream kid thing to do. Just yeah. Run through the hospital gurney. Gurneys now are like really bulky and boring and slow, but I imagine this is like a metal gurney. You can oh, just yeah. fly around the hall. I can picture it. You could just shoot a patient from one ward to another back in the day, and no one cared. <laughs> and everyone was smoking cigarettes. It was cool. What are we, what, what are we talking about? What? <laughs> the orphans race through the hospital trying to get away from the hench person of indeterminate gender who was chasing them while also avoiding the fire that Esme had started, which had now spread through most of the hospital. Now it's getting bad. This yeah. is bad. Yeah, it's a little dangerous. You don't want fire in your hospital. Mm-mm. I can tell you. I work at a hospital. I can tell you right now, fire bad. Yeah. The children lock themselves in a small supply closet, and Violet, now somewhat awake from her anesthesia, creates a bungee cord out of rubber bands, which the children use to leap out the closet window and safely land on the floor. Feel free to try this at home, kids. (laughs) Satire. Yeah. Uh, Fearing capture by the crowd of people fleeing the hospital, the children decide to hide in the only place they can see that wasn't currently on fire, the trunk of a nearby car. Unfortunately, they soon realized that the long, black, bullet-hole-filled vehicle belonged to none other than Mr. Count Olaf. Wild. 
Duke count Olaf? Well, he's already count, so I guess I'm adding it. Yeah. He would be one to like, no, my first name's count, but I'm also an Earl. <laughs> He'd be like that. I yeah, can see that happening. I can see it. Olaf and his gang pile into the car and drive off, unknowingly taking the Baudelaire children along with them to destinations unknown. Editor's note. In the heavily torn up letter, Snicket gives his instructions for his editor to meet with a person with a long mustache who will give him a satchel. Inside the satchel, he will find a sketch of Chabo the wolf baby, something belonging to one Madame Lulu, an unknown broken object that is not to be repaired under any circumstances, and a copy of the Snicket's latest transcript, The Carnivorous Carnival. I'm, I'm very excited for this next book. Yeah, guys, you should honestly skip this episode and just wait till next week. Nah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. No, this is really good. There's a lot of insight in this one, but next next book is really fun. I, I also just, I like how it ended. Because you're like, oh, they're in their car. This is wild. Yeah. Yeah, this one is, is a very great twist at the end there. I really like it. It would make me hit next episode, please. Yes. So now that we know what happened, it's time to discuss our personal proclivities from this week's chapters. And in the spirit of Levity Snicket, we'll be covering our 13 unfortunate faves, facts, and findings. Beginning, of course, classically with number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mentioned earlier, I, I promise, I do, I really don't remember how this is resolved. But we got to talk about this whole survive fire thing. And we kind of both agreed already that... It's definitely not the parents. Yeah. It can't be. Yeah. It's just, it's not the story. So you, you discussed your theory that there's like a third person, a third party involved, perhaps Mr. Snicket himself that was at the house and, you know, wasn't, may have survived the fire, but not the parents. Because right. it is called the Snicket file. It's not called the Baudelaire file. Yeah. Although it's under B for Baudelaire. Right. But we'll get to that. I agree. My theory, what if it's the Quagmire fire? What if Quigley's alive? <gasps> that I want to cry thinking I about know, that. I know. <laughs> They're third triplet. Yeah, I know. But that's the other fire, you know. You would think so. Right. This is wow. I got chills. Yeah. Right. I that's... like this theory. I'm really, I'm really excited to see how this turns out. Me too. Uh, I'm very, very interested. Oh, so what a twist! I think the the opening the hatch and then it's in there. They're in their burnt down home is more of a what? Right. More of a wild take. But this is like a bigger plot point. There's a bigger twist. Absolutely. But I will say them opening the hatch. That, like, that is moment. just like a visual that yeah. I can't get out of my head. Just like absolute shock. What a what a moment. Such a good moment. It's Ugh. so good. So number two. For whatever reason, I find the final illustration of the Baudelaire's in Olaf's trunk so sad. It really is. Um, and Violet especially looks so small and vulnerable in her hospital gown. I know. They're all just kind of curled up together in what's got to be a very smelly trunk. I know. And it kind of reminds me, well, like I'm thinking also of whenever they're like running through, she's trying to think of some invention. And isn't mm-hmm. it Sunny that gives her something to tie her hair up with? It, well, when she's in her hospital gown, yeah, yeah. Honey gives her something. Sunny, honey, Sunny gives her something. Yeah, you're right. I uh, just like the whole idea, just her, her being that kind of vulnerable mm-hmm. in that yeah. last part, and like her, her younger siblings taking care of her in that yeah. way is very. Sweet. No, and, and there's no place more vulnerable than in a hospital, like literally yeah. under anesthesia, like truly surgery. It's as vulnerable as you get. It, yeah, it's, it's rough. 
All right. I said we we're going to save it for later. <laughs> it's uh, later. It's later. <laughs> the library records filing system is an affront to God. <laughs> it makes me so mad. I think I can speak for both of us that it was incredible. It's the most frustrating thing in this book and that in the series. And that is saying something. Now, okay. I will say, though. A lot of times, not not every filing system is like the Dewey Decimal System. Sure. In fact, a, a lot of libraries will use the Library of Congress, which has a series of subject headings. And if I knew the difference, I would agree with you. Okay. And so this is kind of, I think, based off of that subject heading type of organization, but it's just absolutely well, bonkers. Well, we should probably describe it. Um, yeah. I don't know if we've described it really yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how... He's incredibly passionate about filing. Yes. And he says that, quote, paperwork is the most important thing we do at the hospital, which I genuinely, not being sarcastic, as a healthcare worker, is 100% true. Yeah, I I think I laughed and said accurate. Genuinely, not joking. Accountability and documentation are the most important things in the hospital. Everything revolves around it to the point it drives you crazy. But this hospital filing system makes no sense. So the system is... It's almost pathological. Um, mm-hmm. He It's just kind of filed under some kind of qualifier or some kind of descriptor of a file. And also, these files have nothing to do with the hospital. Absolutely nothing. So nothing to like, do with the hospital or the patients in it. No. So it's not even patient information. How, as an example, uh, says, well, I got. let's say I have a file here about Damocles Doc, a uh, member from book three. Mm-hmm. And he says he can be filed under D for Damocles. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Or W for weather. <laughs> Bit of a bit of a, a diagonal move there, yeah. or even P for paragraph. Well, everything's paragraphs, Hal, isn't it? Yeah, get out. So of what here. are we doing? <laughs> and if they're not all paragraphs, why are they not all paragraphs? Why are these <laughs> files not in paragraphs? Are we just doing blocks of text here? What are we doing, Hal? What is this a Reddit post? <laughs> he also tells Klaus at one point to store a file for thimbles under P for what? What, what do you think of P stands for in this case, Jess? Thimble. For protection of the thumb. <laughs> the man is a monster. He needs to be tried. <laughs> no, it's absolutely it's wild. absolutely insane. The only person that can navigate their way through that filing system is Hal himself. Yeah. And yeah. even then he probably and, forgets what no, he did. No, he can't because he can't even see. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, so that's a weird thing with this filing system is that it's just apparently just like a, it's just a physical Wikipedia. There's just information around it's nothing to do it's not patient information it's not any of that so it's a weird absurd little side quest in this whole thing (laughs) (laughs) but i will stop it there all right well number four after a couple of fatality free books it now seems like it now seems like murder is back on the menu Mm, yummy well, we don't know for sure, but it looks like the hench person of indeterminate gender died in the hospital fire. Yeah, when they ran off, they they left the hench person back. Right. In yeah. The yeah. Hospital. Um, also, after Olaf takes over as head of human resources, he announces that the previous worker had quote decided to pursue a career as a stunt woman and has begun throwing herself off of buildings immediately. End quote. That's just a good joke. Rip to them both. Rip, indeed. <laughs> Number five, one of the chapter illustrations shows a bearded member of VFD playing a guitar 
And on that guitar, there is a message reading, this volunteer fights disease, which is a fun reference for music nerds like me, because that is obviously an allusion to the very famous picture of American folk singer Woody Guthrie, who had a guitar with the message, this machine kills fascists. Oh, that's right. Which okay. Which is one of my favorite pictures ever. He looks so cool. Mm-hmm. And he's such a cool dude. He's such a cool figure. He was a, you know, a huge promoter of, uh, you know, worker rights and all that. Um, and Hank Green of Hank Green fame, mm-hmm. um, on one of his album covers, he recreates that photo, but his guitar says, this machine pones noobs. <laughs> uh, it's actually written on his real guitar, but it's cool. <laughs> I don't know. That was very funny. That's very internet of him. It's very, it was, well, this was like 2009, 10, exactly. 11. So it was, that was very, that was very Tumblr of him. Uh-huh. <laughs> It was so random, LOL Rothel. XD random. XD, wow, I couldn't remember XD random. I was like, <laughs> I know there's a some annoying acronym in there. <laughs> Number six. Snicket gives us a few more clues about Beatrice, which oh, I'm Getting so juicy. <laughs> okay, so Beatrice uh, met Esme for the first time going to an afternoon tea. It's not clear if Beatrice knew she was meeting Esme or if she knew who Esme was or what was happening there, but they met they at met a tea. tea. Yeah. yeah. Two, Beatrice is connected in some way to a volunteer organization that was, quote, swarming with corruption. Which really doesn't narrow it down. Well, I mean, also, okay, I'm thinking, when I think of that, mm-hmm. I might be thinking of, you the know, government. how, uh, no, how Esme ran the auction for a person, like people in need. Mm-hmm. I think it might mm-hmm. be along that vein. That's definitely where it seems like it's going. Yeah. And then the third one is that Snicket agonizes over the question, was it absolutely necessary to steal that sugar bowl from Esme Squalor? Sugar bowl. Which harks back to the tea. Yep. Well, and also when Esme shoves the children down the elevator shaft, she says, uh, I forget the exact quote, but she mentions Beatrice stealing from her. Uh-huh. Now we know it was a sugar bowl. Uh-huh. Was that sugar or was it cocaine? We don't know. <laughs> I mean, find out. I think in, in this children's book, it's probably sugar. <laughs> we'll have to find out. <laughs> Number seven. I don't know why, but crack it up with the hook-handed man when it describes him as having put a glove over his hook, <laughs> which is also in the book cover from the original edition, which oh. is also a big missing. But it's literally, it's a... It's like you would imagine. It's just one finger filled with the hook and then the rest of these droopy fingers <laughs> around it. I just find it... I just find it hilarious. No, it is. It's a funny image. That image and then Esme's stiletto, literal stiletto Mm -hmm. shoes, great visual gags in a non-visual medium. Yeah, good job. Good job. Number eight. Despite her lack of formal education and being well below the legal working age, Sunny is building quite the respectable resume. Yeah, she is, girl. Get it. So with her new position at the hospital records room, Sunny is now on her third job, all of which have been in administration. I smell a future communications major. That's fun. (laughs) Get that hustle, girl. Yeah. On that grind. A little corporate girly over here. A little corporate girly. Number nine. Our set of A Series of Unfortunate Event books is actually the UK edition because that was the only way we could get paperback and we just wanted paperback for storage and transport and all. It just is easier to work with. And so they all have different covers. For the most part, they're pretty much fine. This is the only cover, this book is the only cover that I feel is, is a major downgrade because I. it's probably my favorite of the whole series, the original edition. In the original, you see Klaus holding the rusty blade. And so it's actually Violet's 
POV with Klaus standing over her with the rusty knife and the two henchmen and all of them wearing surgical masks. And I remember as a kid being like, what is happening? Why is why does Klaus have a knife? Why is he working with the henchmen? Right, what's like, going on? Is he hypnotized again? Right. Or? That's literally, I was like, what's going on? So it's really cool. So this book cover, I think it's Klaus and Sonny standing over Violet in a hospital bed. And then there's like a balloon covering her face or something. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's whatever. But, uh, but then there's also like old timey medical machine machinery in the background, which I, I'm a sucker for. I love that stuff. Oh, so cool. same. Yeah. It's, it's just a nice aesthetic. It's a great aesthetic. Well, number 10, a special edition of Hostile Hospital, released exclusively in the UK, contained a dusk jacket for the fictitious book The Pony Party. Pony Party! Book one in the Luckiest Kids in the World series, written by Loney M. Setnick. So this is obviously like a reversal of the series of fortunate events. It's like the exact opposite. Right. And I just love the backside of the jacket. Uh, which reads, reading is fun, cool, and educational. And this book is one of the most exciting ever. It's about the luckiest kids in the world, Lori, Larry, and little Linda Lotzeluck, and their side-splitting adventures at the pony party. Everyone loves ponies. Everybody loves parties. And that means that everybody, absolutely everybody, loves pony parties. In this delightfully appropriate book, The nice siblings will be treated to a fun party, a big prize, several kind and sensible adults. Wow, that's the biggest change. Yeah. And all the cake they could eat. Doesn't that sound perfect? But remember, my young friends, there's more to life than ponies and cake. Keep your teeth and gums sparkly clean. Obey your parents. Try to be a good citizen and keep reading all about the luckiest kids in the world. Written by me, your adorable author, with glee, Loney M. Setnick. I am obsessed with this. How did I not know that? I, I mean, didn't know that until I was researching this book, but it's we don't have it in our edition, but it's right. yeah, it's it's very fun. I just uh, what a I fun love time. That so much. We should have done that series. <laughs> so uh, for number eleven, we get a few interesting anecdotes about the Baudelaires in their life pre-death of their parents. We learn that the family used to use Sunny as the house can opener. Except for cans of beets, which is lots of, that's very fun. Outrageous. Borderline abusive, but it seems like everyone's enjoying it. (laughs) Uh, We also learned that Violet won her first invention competition at just five years old when she made a automatic rolling pin made out of broken window shades and a, and six pairs of rollerblades, which seems, that's excessive. Seems like you could just use a rolling pin. Um, And then we also learned that, very sweet, that Violet's dad used to call her by her pet name, Ed which was short for endocarditis. Oh, no, sorry, uh, Edison, like Thomas Edison. <laughs> we're gonna but no, that's product. actually very, very adorable. sweet. That's so cute. Mm. And then finally, we get the absolutely devastating story oh, yeah. about how the orphan's mom would always carry a little pocket dictionary with her any, everywhere she went in case she came across a word she didn't know, and she'd promised that she would give that dictionary to Klaus when he grew up, which, of course, she was never able to do. It's such a bummer. (laughs) You know what? It's a bit of a bummer, this book. Yeah. This series. It's rather unfortunate. Let's switch to the luckiest kids in the world. That seems way more fun. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so number 12. <clears throat> We're getting to the VFD clues. Snicket mentions a, quote, noble organization wrecked by a greedy man and a lazy newspaper. It seems like it's suggesting Count Olaf ruined whatever this VFD was. Yeah. And, and shockingly, the local newspaper was running a false story that besmirched people's names or something. Yeah. 
which I can see that happening. Um, And then the second one is one of the snippets from the Quagmire Journal reads, quote, in photographs and in each public place, Snicket rarely shows his face, end quote. Which, seems, seems to be a lemony. Yeah, so yeah, that's why we think in the photo that the hidden guy is Lemony Snicket. Snicket. Yeah, so he's coming a little closer to the story as it's happening here. He's getting a little more directly involved. All right, now finally, the one you've all been waiting for, number 13, as always, is our literary references. Heck yeah. So while searching through the files, the children read off the alphabetical labels, which included stuff like Babbitt to Babylon. Babylon being a civilization that had literature, but uh, Babbitt possibly being a reference to a satirical novel of the same name by Sinclair Lewis, which won him the 1930s Pulitzer Prize in literature. Yeah. Could also possibly be a reference to Babbitt metal, which is a type of alloy used as a thin surface layer in complex multi-metal assemblies due to its resistance to galling. Uh, and galling is a type of wearing caused by adhesion between sliding surfaces. But I know what you're going to say, babe. Its structure is actually made up of small hard crystals dispersed in a softer metal, which would make it technically a metal matrix composite, not an alloy. But I don't want to be making enemies with their engineering fans out there. So let's just say it's about the Yeah, book. I think it's the former. There's also Fatalism to Faulkner, a nod to author William Faulkner, who with books with the titles like As I Lay Dying, <laughs> could definitely be described as fatalistic. No. He's one of the uh, post-World War World War One modernist writers. Mm. Everything's a little bleak. A little, it's a little bleak. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite quotes about the First World War, I forget who says it, but it's, nothing was gained from the First World War except for writing about how pointless and awful that war was. Like, yep. was. I butchered that quote terribly, but it was literally the only thing that came out of that war of any value was work on about how useless and awful it was. Yeah. Art. Art. And isn't it worth it? Mm. Wasn't it worth it, y'all? Mm. Many of the patients named at the hospital are references to book as well. Mm. Books as well. Uh, we get Emma Bovary, a patient with food poisoning, which refers to a character of the same name in Flaubert's novel, Madame Bovary. Mm-hmm. Jonah Maple, who has seasickness, which probably a reference to Father Maple from a preacher from the book, Moby Dick. Okay. So, yeah, seasickness. Moby Dick, right. And Jonah, you know, the Jonah and the whale. swallowed by the whale. There you go. There you go. Uh, Cynthia Vane, a patient with a toothache, is likely named after a character in Vladimir Nabokov's short story, The Vane Sisters. Okay. And we get a bonus Nabokov nod when Snicket it mentions his friend, Mr. Siri, who is a lepidopterist, uh, uh, someone who studies and collects butterflies. Which, there was that whole weird paragraph. Yeah, so there's a whole weird paragraph. of What what was in it? He was like... It was like his friend that would swallow butterflies or something. Oh, yeah, he'd keep them in his mouth. He'd only eat soft food so he wouldn't crush the butterflies in his mouth. <sighs> just I was like, outrageous. Just it was a ridiculous man. <laughs> Speaking of ridiculous man... Nabokov was a noted lepidopterist, and actually one of his early pseudonyms was Vladimir Siren. So that's where the friend's name comes from. Okay. And love of butterflies was more than a hobby. Uh, he was at, Nabokov was actually a research fellow in the 40s and was responsible for organizing the butterfly collection at Harvard University's Museum of Comparative Zoology. So not a mm. not a nothing job. And the uh, the genus Nabokovia was named in his honor, the genus of butterflies. Wow. Yeah, and so 
While he was passionate about his bugs, he was not a great scientist. He vehemently dismissed using uh, genetics to distinguish species of butterflies, preferring the the traditional method of identification, which was comparing genitals. Ah. Butterfly genitals, Ah. to be clear. If you don't believe me, you can visit Nabokov's genitalia cabinet at the Harvard Museum of Natural History. I promise you this is a real thing. You can Google it. It exists (laughs) where his collection of male butterfly genitalia is stored. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Artists Are All Perverts and You Shouldn't Trust Them. <laughs> this is the man who wrote Lolita. Yeah, I, I yeah. So it all, it all comes together. He also didn't never learn to drive. So he'd make his wife drive him out into the country to so he could collect butterflies. butterflies so he could look at their genitals. <laughs> Little SpongeBob. I imagine like SpongeBob looking type of man. Yeah, pretty much. Speaking of artistic perverts, finally we get. Probably my favorite reference in the whole series. Oh, yeah. I actually exclaimed out loud when I saw this reference. Me too. But we get a straight up mention of noted pervert and artist and author Haruki Mirakami, who's just named as one of the patients there. There's not really anything around that, but he's named. And uh, I saw that and I cried a little. Yeah, Spencer's a big fan. We have a whole shelf devoted to this. I love Mirakami. He's one of my favorite authors. He's He's a really good author, but he's a also a weird man. But aren't well, we all? Yeah, most artists are kind of weird. Well, speaking of obsessive weirdos, it's time for Road to Pretension. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Road to Pretension. <laughs> farts will never not be funny. It's they, You can't grow out of them. You can grow out of some books. You can't grow out of your own farts. Nope. Unless you have, like, get your colon removed or something. No, you still fart if you get your colon farting, removed? probably. Probably farting more. Are you farting more or less without a colon? That's a good question. Any doctors out there, call us. I need help with my colon. Oh, yeah. That's right. It's time to take a journey down the road to pretension where we take a deeper look at this week's book to figure out what's making it so good. Why is it so good today? Why is it so dang good? Well, this week... We're going old school, or not? Hmm? That's the best joke I could think about for this. Okay. Uh, as we take a look at Lemony's think it's use of anachronisms. Ooh, Ooh, I wish I knew what anachronism meant. Well, I'll tell you. Derived from their Greek word meaning backward time, hmm. an anachronism is when a story includes people or things in the wrong time period, either on purpose or by mistake. So this could be anything from clothes to technology to slang words to social norms. Hmm. You probably mostly associate anachronisms with nerds on the internet explaining how like Marty McFly's guitar wasn't invented until after the time he was used in Back to the Future, or gotcha. like how uh, William Wallace and Braveheart, they wouldn't have worn kilts back then. Ah. Uh, and also William Wallace didn't look like a handsome, curly-haired anti-Semite. <laughs> but like I said with Deus Ex Machina, I think, it's, I think it's more interesting if I look at how anachronisms are used to improve a book rather than just picking out how people make mistakes about mm. things. So first, I'm going to go over a few ways that authors typically use anachronisms purposefully in their story, and then look at how Lemony Snicket's use of anachronisms fits into the that general mold. One reason you might use anachronisms is for comedic effect. So like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh. where they they suddenly have a grenade, and they're in medieval times, spoiler, 
you know, <laughs> just silly things like that, yeah. or or something like Shrek or A Knight's Tale. Oh, love A Knight's Tale. Same. I because I, w- I watched it when I was much younger, and me too. And when I watched it as an adult, I was like, oh, it's so modern with the mm. music, with the, and yeah. the fashion. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it but it's fun. It, it, it gets you. It it just it's a funny juxtaposition. Yeah. And they all make jokes using modern references. We will rock you in A Knight's Tale, or like yeah. anything Shrek does. Shrek is such a wild movie today. Anyway, uh, we don't need we don't need to do that. We yeah, need, we don't right, get in there. Right. <laughs> Check out our, our Shrek cast for all, <laughs> all our Shrek takes. Uh, but for a, a a literature example, you have something like Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, where a 19th century man is suddenly transported to medieval England, or even something a little more modern with uh, a series we've well, I've mostly read, but you've read A Discovery of Witches. Yes. So there's a lot of back in time and things not adding up and 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 a lot of like vampire you know immortal creature stories they have these weird like anachronisms where like edward has and twilight has like terrible taste in music <laughs> that, um, i don't think like that, that would be an anachronism no but i was thinking about that earlier today so it just came up again <laughs> i was i was listening don't ask why i was listening to a playlist of like 1930s music one of the biggest songs of the decade was like i put sugar in my tea Women shouldn't vote. I was like, this is awful. This is an awful song. So in both A Discovery Witches and A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, the juxtaposition between timelines is used for humor, mostly to poke fun at like outdated norms, while also commenting on how people tend to overly romanticize the past. Yeah. It's a common theme with those kind of stories. Um, and anachronisms, besides comedic effect, are also used to help an audience understand and a appreciate a different time period. You'll see this a lot in like Shakespeare productions uh, where the original script is kept intact but using modern sets and costumes to help make the story feel more relatable, more understandable by the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so you take like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo X Juliet, that remake where it's Leo DiCaprio oh, yeah. and they're modern day, they use guns and stuff, but they, they're speaking with the original Shakespearean script. But interesting enough, Shakespeare actually used the same technique in his, himself in his writing. Yeah. So uh, most famously in the play Julius Caesar, uh, Cassius mentions a clock striking three when mechanical clocks did not exist in ancient Rome, or as they called it at the time, Rome. That's a good one. Thank you. That's a good one. I think I stole that from Fairly Odd Parents. <laughs> I think. Even better. That show. <laughs> that show's was good. So good. So good. I I mean, I didn't watch it after the like a point in time it kind of got bad, but like, man, first first two seasons probably. Excellent. And check out our fairly odd cast for all our fairly godparent takes. Bit of a stretch there. Hey, well, good to stretch. You know, we don't know for sure if this was just a mistake by Shakespeare. Or if it was intentional, but I I find it more likely that Shakespeare chose to use the image of a clock for dramatic effect, yeah, rather than him not understanding that clocks were a fairly recent invention. Just just my guess, but who knows? And and also because like saying the clock is stricken three sounds a lot more dramatic and exciting than the sundial shows it's three. Or I mean, you can based say something the... like the shadow passes over the the third stone yeah but that doesn't help my point babe instead my joke i would say based on the sun's place in the sky i believe it to be three okay well maybe he should hire me but maybe he was just wrong (laughs) i like that in you saying that that meant that what i said was actually quite a good line yeah it was all right thank you get off my road (laughs) and you know and so even if it was a mistake 
like like with Deus Machina, if your story is good enough, no one will care. The clock striking three is a good line. It works. It makes the point known. It doesn't matter. Right. Except for you nerds out there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, ins- I'm insulting our core demographic. Right. <laughs> Anachronisms can also be used in academia to analyze fiction and nonfiction texts, but that's beyond my level of expertise. The main point I'm making is that anachronisms can be a tool for authors to use like any other device. So you might be asking, what's the most dangerous? <laughs> forgot to <do> this joke. <laughs> I'm not even gonna look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so you might be. <laughs> You're. You gotta keep all of this in. It's so not worth. It's not this funny. <laughs> so you might be asking, what's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? Well, with this one time, I. Well, actually, never mind. It's too dangerous. <laughs> Three people will get yeah, that three joke. Three people will get that joke, but they're going to love me. it. <laughs> <laughs> you may also be asking, how does Snicket use anachronisms in his work? Well, for one, that's a very good question, and I'm very happy you asked it. Thank you for asking me and paying attention. You're welcome. For two, well, there's a few reasons. It actually took me a while to kind of come to a conclusion to, uh, to why Snicket includes just so much anachronisms in A Series of Unfortunate Events. Because it isn't used like directly for comedy, as far as I can remember, and it doesn't make it doesn't make the story more like approachable to an audience. If anything, it makes it more confusing. Yeah, he had to explain what a telegraph was. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's, tele- it, it's convoluted in a way, and in typical fashion, Snicket does not provide a clear answer anywhere. When asked about the time period of the story, Snicket is quoted as saying, "A series of unfortunate events takes place in the city and regions surrounding it." during the week, and sometimes on weekends. I actually love that. I mean, it's a great, that's a great line, but it does not help. (laughs) Obviously, Snicket wants the time period to be somewhat ambiguous, but there's definitely a loose time frame Snicket is aiming at. The Baudelaire's Victorian-style clothing, the Model T-type cars, and the the distinct lack of child labor laws (laughs) would suggest that the story takes place sometime between the late 1800s, early 1920s, or 30s, But at the same time, there's also helicopters, computers, and phones alongside telegraphs, typewriters, and horse-drawn carriages. So why make the time period so muddled? Because it seems very targeted. It seems a specific thing he's doing. Why is Snicket such an anachronistic anarchist? Well, I think that can be answered with two more A words. Mm. Age and aesthetic. So like I mentioned before, Snicket clearly doesn't want to set a concrete timeline for his stories and that's actually not many writers purposely keep the time period of their work vague in order to keep it from coming outdated i think that's a smart move no it is like you, you, if you include too many references to the specific time a book is written and you risk alienating future readers yeah and like there's... bella having to wait for her computer to load up yeah but that that's can be cutesy it's more for me what gets me out of it is like one at Hank Green's books, he he mentions specific like political thing he discusses that is v- just very of the moment, and it kind of throws me out of it, especially rereading it later. Oh, and, and that's and that's not even very far removed. No, but it's still already you're just like I can just see him writing it in that year of that happening. It kind of throws it. Yeah. Quick side tangent. They never are, but I'm going to say it's quick. Uh, researching this piece, I came across a fascinating book called Telling Children's Stories, uh, Narrative Theory. It actually talks about how the physical design of the hardcover, the original hardcovers, were purposely made to resemble like old leather-bound books on a bookshelf. Yeah. 
and the way the paper made it look old and it was purposely done to make it feel timeless. I think this might be a good piece for you to cover at some point. I won't get into it now, but it's a fascinating read on this. And so clearly, for me, that's just another hint that that was Snicket's intention to make it kind of a timeless story. Uh, But actually, I think the main reason for the anachronisms is the aesthetic appeal. A series of fortunate events has a very specific style and feel. And we've talked before about like the sarcastic meta writing and the dark, like quasi gothic style. But another less obvious signature of the series, it's its subtle magical realism. Yeah. And for those who don't know, magical realism is a style of literature where the world of a story is primarily grounded in reality, but with just a few magical elements sprinkled in, but not enough to be categorized as a fantasy book. Kind of what you would like assume, like, I don't know, people kind of tend to like spiritualize their own lives. And I feel like it's a bit of an extension of that. Definitely. Just slightly more fantastical. Yeah. And we all kind of engage with magical thinking with things. We're like, if I do this, I I will make this happen kind of thing. You know, we kind of make bets with ourselves and stuff. Yeah. But uh, but I think a, a literature that fits this is guys might not know, but F. Scott Fitzgerald actually wrote the original short story, A Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Mm, um, you know, I always forget that fact. Me too. <laughs> you think I would remember. But yeah. um, so that that story, person aging backwards, but everything else in the story is normal. Mm-hmm. And so like in a series of unfortunate events, there's no magicians or ogres or demigods. But throughout the series, we encounter semi-sentient snakes uh, self-sustaining hot air balloon homes, hypnotism, and let's just say an inconsistent application of physics <laughs> to and say just the science least. in yes. general. Yeah. <laughs> so all this adds to the surreal fairy tale kind of aesthetic of a series of unfortunate events. I think the anachronistic technology kind of adds another layer on top of this. If the children are using a telegraph in the store that also sells fiber optic cables, the audience... Well, I have no idea what's going to happen. Like two books ago, we had a computer. Right. And now we got a telegraph. So it's anything's in front of you. Anything is possible in the story. Everything's up for grabs. You don't know what is possible, what is not. Especially for a kid's story like this, I think that is such an amazing choice. And I really like how Snicket is applying it, especially in this book. I agree. I I think that's a really good point that you made there. Thank you. I think uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to pull off the road to pretension and pull up to the YA information station. That's me. We're going to fill up our tanks with a bunch of knowledge from our resident librarian in training. Jessica, tell us some facts. Yeah, I Or will. don't. Just whatever you want to do. No, I'll tell you. Okay. Um, okay so, hey, y'all. Hey. Um, I'm coming at you this week with some information about the series of unfortunate events illustrator. Mm. Brett Helquist. Love him. And I know we've talked about it a little bit. I know you kind of mentioned a bit of it, Spencer, but I did a little bit of more research. And most of my information is coming from his website and some sources found from the Wikipedia page. There's a good art article written by like the BYU. I don't know. They have like articles that they publish. But I highly recommend you check out his website because mm-hmm. it contains a lot of images of his best work. And mm-hmm. what's really cool is that the welcome page for his website shows you a different image every time you show up to the page. Oh, so that's like, cool. It's randomized. And I really like that. The, the latest one that I had that, that I saw had a black cat on it that looked mm. like our baby Fitzy boy. Oh. So Brett Helquist was born in Arizona and raised in Utah. And if that doesn't scream Mormonism, he also went to BYU. It also so. screams Mormonism. 
Mormonism! <laughs> you. <laughs> well, he grew up in a household with six sisters. That screams Mormonism. Yes, it does. Um, so he knew at a young age that he wanted to be an illustrator, and he had dreams of making his own comic strip. Yeah, that's what... And he failed. No. He's a loser. Um, but he did read a lot of comic strips on the in the paper, and um, like that's what he wanted to do. He took a missionary trip to Hong Kong. Ooh, good get. He worked on some artwork there. He was... And then he also spent a year in Taiwan, where hmm. he was illustrating a textbook. But his work done there led him to be admitted into the fine arts program at BYU, which, for those of you who don't know, it's Brigham Young University, mm-hmm. and it's a university in Utah. So and we know what happens when people get rejected from art school. They invade Poland. <laughs> Indeed. So, good, uh, good call, BYU. But he was previously studying as an engineering student and mm. then decided to switch over to fine arts. Um, that's a that's that's a lesson for all you STEM majors out there. Yeah, I mean, it's if you're really it. not enjoying it, if you're really struggling, like there are other options available for you. Even if you are, just leave. It's not <laughs> no, worth it. Don't work hard. No, we're not promoting that message. Oh, sorry, I'm letting my uh, my resentments from my majors <laughs> seep through. You are. Um, but it was there at BYU that he eventually developed his distinct uh, quote mock Gothic style that he mm-hmm. has today. And um, Mothic, yes, as they call it. I think that's a good way to put it. So in 1993, he moved to New York where he spent three days out of his week as a designer and two days as an illustrator for newspapers and magazines. After work, he would spend his time drawing and painting and sending out his portfolio to magazines to get another gig. On that grind, bro. Yeah, he was truly on that artist living in a big city grind. Back when you could afford that. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, I know some people that I went to high school with that are currently doing that. Wow. There's a whole musical about people paying rent in New York City. Yeah. Shout out to, um, I think her ad is at AQ Icebox. Mm. I was thinking of the musical Rent. Oh, indeed. Because you know what they had to do? Pay rent. They did. That indeed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so his first book illustrating job that he got was The Bad Beginning. Really? Yes. Wow. Just home run off the Home off... run off the bat. Wow. Good yeah. for him. I know. That's what I thought. I said I was like, no way. But no, it's true. And he had an agent who set up the contract. Like he got an agent and like mm-hmm. immediately they set up that contract and it was supposed to be for four bucks. I would have guessed that Snicket was like, I got this faux gothic or child, you know, gothic light style I'm going for. He finds his portfolio like, oh, this guy's got it. That's crazy. They just hooked up immediately. Yeah. Well, I mean, he probably had like a sure, portfolio. Sure, true, true. But it's work. crazy that's his first big role. Exactly. His first big uh, gig. I thought the same thing. Um, and so he got the contract for four books and he was like, at the time, like it, it wasn't really a big thing. He wasn't well known. The series wasn't super well known. Man, could you imagine they changed illustrators halfway through? insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then he signed for another four books. But then after that, that's when it really took off but i will say like no one like the editor was brand new and like no one knew who daniel handler was no one knew who he was and so like all three of them like made a real name for themselves with this series i mean this series especially the first book feels to me amateurs in the best way it feels like people from outside the scene it's such a weird take it's such a different look at it's such a rebuttal in a way to children's literature yeah 
I could. It makes sense hearing that they were all just yeah first it, outsiders. It's in a way in. that can only be done by outsiders, right? Like because if you're established, you're not going to do this weird stuff like the narrator's actively telling you not to read the book. Like that's just yeah, that's outrageous. That's awesome. <laughs> that makes sense now, but that's super cool. Yeah, I thought so too. So then you know the book really took off for the last set of his contract, and mm-hmm. after the series took off. Brett began illustrating both covers and interiors for children's books and YA. So mm-hmm. he kind of branched out. Um, They're like, uh, Brett, uh, <laughs> Brett, uh, this book was about a happy crayon, and uh, it's, it seems to be disembowelled. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, 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 we're big fans. Just uh, we, we're looking for a different tone. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> But um, some of these other projects that he did includes the uh, famous Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Yeah. Not the one that you're probably thinking of. No, the re-release that was intentionally toned down. I talked about it in a piece before. Yeah, that's when you did talk about yeah, it before. But they t- it, Brett Helquist is a great get for that, but the Scary Stories illustrations are perfect. They're so no, unique. There's... And they purposely had him tone down the gore and like the creepiness to make it more sellable so it's just he wasn't in a good situation. like fair enough but also i mean his artwork is his, his art or great well it's done, just yeah. it's just the worst version of that yeah that book yeah but he even began writing stories of his own say what yeah he made his own picture books really yeah so oh. he has one called the grumpy goat bedtime for bear and i think my personal favorite roger the jolly pirate i've actually read grumpy goat and he does summon satan which is really cool oh really no no i'm just kidding oh, okay. <laughs> I believe no. every word that came out of your mouth just now. But it does remind me of the conspiracy theory where um, George W. Bush uh, on 9-11, mm-hmm. when he was informed about the 9-11, mm-hmm. uh, was reading My Pet Goat. And there's a whole theory about that oh, goat story being yeah. a satanic ritual. Wake up, people. You know who's in charge of the field that United 93 crashed into? Mr. Crowley. Yeah. Yeah, his name was Crowley. You know who else was named Crowley? Uh, a wizard. <laughs> Thank you, Henry Zabrowski. Yeah, I'm, I'm literally just doing an impression of last podcast. Okay, but... <laughs> <laughs> I miss when conspiracy theories were I know. So... They, literally, the conspiracy subreddit has been, just been ruined by QAnon. It's yeah. just garbage now. Yeah, they've, they've taken it too far. It's not fun anymore. No. But uh, yeah, that's that's all I have. That's awesome. That's a great story. That's such a fun. I love that. It makes a lot of sense that they were all these kind of newbies, outsiders coming in, and we're like, we're gonna do a weird thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm super pleased with that. But thank you guys for listening. Yeah. Next week we'll be back at you. The carnivorous carnival. Very fun. A great episode. You guys are gonna want to read that. You're gonna want to be listening to the episode. You don't have to read it. We'll tell you what happens. But if you want to read it, read it. Yeah. You got two weeks to do it. I'm very excited for that. And uh, I just want to announce we, Justin and I, were talking about the pod, what we want to do with it. So we've got a bit of announcement. Um, we're going to be changing things up. We're going to be more active on social media. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start tweeting out couplet reviews in honor of Isadora Quagmire yes. of all the books I've, I'm reading. I'm reading 100 books this year. It's my goal. So is Jess. Yes. But you're going to hear about my books because I'm going to be tweeting about them. So just look out for that. I'm going to give you guys reviews. And if you want more in-depth reviews of these books just message us i'd be happy to talk about them with you you can find both of us on goodreads under our actual names if you can find our actual names probably not hard to do <laughs> yeah you can message us we'll send you yeah yeah if you want to if you want to be our friends at goodreads we will be your friends at goodreads Absolutely. i will like every time you update your progress in a book yeah which i've never done I've but never like genuinely me. like it but i will enjoy i will like i will click like it and i will like it 
Yes. As in I enjoy it. Um, also, I think it's. I think I should just announce it now. Yeah. Coming in March, we're going to launch a second podcast. And yeah, guess what? Jess isn't a part of it. It's just me. It's your book boy coming at you solo for a whole show. I know my solo episodes get the least views. Well, I don't even care. I'm making you listen to me do a podcast by myself. And you know what it's about? Shakespeare. The bard himself. I'm going to be reviewing every Shakespeare play. I'm going to be dissecting it. I'm going to be bisecting it. I'm going to be trisecting it. Heck yeah. I'm going to be also reading it. And I'm going to be talking about Shakespeare, his life, and the, uh, certain aspects around Shakespeare, his world, yeah, like the Globe us Theater. Yeah, a little bit of context. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about adaptations of Shakespeare's plays. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really putting a lot of work into it. I really want to make it good in all sincerity. I'm really have researching it very heavily. And I just really want to discover what makes Shakespeare so... Why is he the one we know? Why is he so omnipresent in that era of literature? And I just kind of always wanted to go in a deep dive of Shakespeare, and I finally found an excuse to do it. So we'll be giving you more information of that as it comes out, but it's planning on early March. We're going to be alternating weeks, so once that starts, we'll be doing... Every week you're going to get a podcast from us, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And I'm just very excited. I'm very excited for it, too. If you guys have anybody that you know that enjoys Shakespeare, please mm -hmm. reach out to them once we mm -hmm. start putting those out there. Yeah, and if you don't enjoy Shakespeare, I am making it as a kind of a bridge to understanding Shakespeare because it is hard. Yeah, Because it it's, it's half a different language. And so, but I think that it's worth understanding. So if you're like a Shakespeare skeptic or if you wanted to feel smarter and act like you know Shakespeare, this is a good pod because that's what I'm trying to do. So <laughs> anyways, just want to tell you guys, we are just trying to want to be more active. We want to engage with you guys more because we really love talking about these books. Every time we buy a bottle of wine, we inevitably end up crying about books Every at time. some point in the night. So yeah. we just want to share those moments with you guys yeah i was just gonna say uh if you want to check out our social medias you can find us on twitter and instagram with the handle at nsya pod nsya pod our theme song and perhaps the other song you heard in this week's episode were performed by my friend alex boone you can discover more of his music on his instagram and facebook alex moon especially his instagram he's posting stuff constantly he's always doing stuff me and him we got a project together coming up i'll tell you guys when that comes out but worth worth a follow that yeah that big, fella. big shout out to him well thank you guys for listening thank you this far yeah if you made it this far yeah sorry about that whole time i was talking about metal alloys <laughs> i, sh I should have cut that in retrospect no yeah all right well have a good night hold yeah. your friends tight and you kiss know, them just don't suck don't you know? suck bye, bye. I say something like weird in this part, but I feel like I've said so many weird, awkward things this week. So I got, I, mean, I got I, nothing. I think it was pretty fine. That was fine, but I've just, I've been, I've been real XD random today. Yeah, babe. little, little I'm ruffling. In raw and dinosaur you're, means I love you. You're a rafflecopter. <laughs> oh, let me just put on my Lawler skates. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh, to be in 2009 again. <laughs> When Corona was only a beer. <laughs>